welcome to the second episode in our Real Estate podcast series on the Compulsory Purchase or CPO regime in England. I'm Fiona Sawyer, a professional support lawyer, and I'm here with Annika Holden, a senior associate in the Herbert Smith Freehills London planning team. Hopefully, you've already had a chance to listen to episode one, in which Charlotte Dyer gave an introduction to the podcast series, a brief explanation of what compulsory purchase is, and some of the factors to consider in choosing the most appropriate compulsory purchase power. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, it may be worth going back to have a listen and then rejoining us for this episode. Annika, could you give us an overview of what you will be speaking about today? Yes, of course. As you all have heard from episode one, compulsory purchase is a statutory tool that can be used to acquire land without the owner's consent, subject to payment of compensation. The rules and requirements around compensation will be covered by my colleague in a later episode. CPO is an extremely useful tool and is responsible for the successful delivery of many large-scale regeneration schemes together with critical infrastructure like airports, railways and utilities infrastructure. The earliest statutes authorising compulsory purchase for road improvement date from the mid-17th century, which just goes to show how critical CPO has been for urban development as we know it. But the acquisition of someone's land against their will is also a draconian measure and subject to strict statutory controls. As far back as the Magna Carta, it has been the law in this country that no person is to be deprived of their land except according to law. So the key words for us here are except according to law. What exactly does the law say? Well, it all starts with the requirement to justify the need for compulsory purchase. And that makes sense when you think about it. If we are to deprive someone of their land without consent, then it should only be because in the circumstances of the case, the interests of the public outweigh the interests of the individual. This fundamental principle is described in the government's national planning practice guidance as the need for a compelling case in the public interest. There are a few points to note about this phrase, compelling case in the public interest. The first is that the case must be compelling. If the scales between the public interest and the landowner are evenly balanced, then the decision should come down against compulsory purchase. The second is that there must be a public interest in whatever purpose the land is being acquired for. As part of this, the acquiring authority will need to be able to show that the scheme is unlikely to be blocked by any physical or legal impediments to implementation. The examples given in the guidance of impediments are the programming of any infrastructure accommodation works or remedial work which may be required and any need for planning permission or other consent or license. This may also include a requirement to demonstrate that funding is or will be in place early in the process. Compulsory purchase powers are unlikely to be granted where the acquiring authority cannot show that it has a clear idea of how it intends to use the land to be acquired and that it has all the required resources to achieve its aim within a reasonable timescale. I should mention here, however, that the CPO guidance was updated by the government in July so that Newtown Development Corporations no longer have to demonstrate that there are specific development proposals in place when seeking to compulsorily acquire land. This change, which doesn't apply to councils, is a very interesting dilution of the rules and demonstrates in part the government's commitment to facilitating new housing. 
We also need to bear in mind that the purpose for which the compulsory purchase powers are to be used must justify interfering with the human rights of those with an interest in the land affected. Regard must be had to the European Convention on Human Rights, and in particular Article 6, which deals with the right to a fair trial, and in the case of a dwelling, Article 8, which deals with the right to respect for private and family life, home and correspondence, together with Article 1 of the First Protocol, which deals with entitlement to peaceful enjoyment of possessions. The stronger this justification, the more likely it is that a CPO will be confirmed. In some cases, this will be very clear. In other cases, it will be more complex. Thank you, Annika. That's really interesting. Could you give us an example? Yes, sure. In episode one, Charlotte introduced a fictional example of a former wartime airfield in Essex known as Freehills Airfield. Half of the site is owned by Herbert Homes International, a property development company that wants to redevelop the land to provide 5,000 new homes. The other half of the site is owned by Smith Airport Limited, which wants to turn the land back into an operational airport. Neither party is willing to sell its part of the land voluntarily, so they are each considering compulsory purchase options to acquire the other's part of the land. Smith Airport Limited may make arguments based on the need for an operational airport in Essex and the opportunities for economic development. Herbert Holmes may make arguments based on the housing crisis and the urgent need for more housing. But as they are opposing each other, each seek to poke holes in the other's justification. Herbert Holmes may say that the justification for an operational airport in that location is flawed, particularly in light of planned expansions of other airports which are close by in London. They may also seek to raise arguments around air quality and the increased emissions that would be caused by such an airport expansion. On the other hand, Smith may seek to argue that there are alternative locations that Herbert Holmes could seek to build housing on, or may say that the housing proposed will not be affordable or match the housing need for the area in terms of size, tenure or other requirements. Okay, so are there any other tests in addition to the requirement for there to be a compelling case in the public interest? Yes, the key one is that the use of compulsory purchase must be a last resort. And what is meant by last resort? It means that you need to demonstrate that you have been negotiating to acquire the land by consent, but that those attempts have failed. There needs to be a genuine attempt to negotiate. However, the CPO guidance does acknowledge that it is not usually feasible for the acquiring authority to wait for negotiations to break down before pursuing CPO, because valuable time will be lost. Therefore, the guidance acknowledges that, depending on when the land is required, it may often be sensible for the acquiring authority to plan a compulsory purchase timetable as a contingency measure and initiate formal procedures. Okay, thank you. Are there any other factors to bear in mind? Yes. All public bodies are bound by the public sector equality duty. This means that when exercising compulsory purchase powers, those bodies must have regard to the effect of any differential impacts on groups with protected characteristics, for example, age, disability, religion, or sexual orientation. The consideration of the public sector equality duty may weigh in favour of the CPO or it may weigh against. For example, if the CPO is to build a new hospital, then the positive impact that the new hospital may have on those with protected characteristics will be a consideration. So how will these arguments all be considered? The process will differ depending on the CPO power being used. 
For example, for an airport proposal which is being consented by way of a development consent order, then the justification for the CPO will be considered as part of the public examination of the development consent application. But I've chosen in this podcast to focus in more detail on the process for a standalone CPO, such as that which might be promoted for a regeneration project, which will be examined separately to any planning application for that project. The justification will be put forward firstly by the acquiring authority in the documentation that it prepares to support the making of the initial CPO. If the acquiring authority is the planning authority, then this will usually be the officer's report to Cabinet. Then, objections to the CPO will be considered by an inspector appointed by the Secretary of State at a public inquiry. Here, the inspector will look very closely at all of the tests which we have discussed and will make a report to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State will then consider the inspector's report and make his own decision with reasoning as to why he considers that the tests are met. He might agree or disagree with the inspector and will give his reasons for doing so. In my experience, planning permission, if required, is normally obtained first before compulsory purchase powers are sought. However, if that is not the case, then the acquiring authority must demonstrate that there are no obvious reasons why such permission might not be granted. Thank you very much, Annika, for that overview of justifying a CPO order. I think it's clear that it's not a straightforward or an easy process. In the next episode of this series, we'll be discussing the process of preparing and making a CPO. Thank you, Fiona. This series is intended to provide a general overview of the various stages of the compulsory purchase process. We've tried to ensure that each podcast is accurate at the time of recording, but the law can change and a general overview can't take account of the many different factors that can affect each individual case. So please seek legal or professional advice. If you have any questions on this podcast or any other in the series, please get in touch using the contact details on the podcast homepage. Thank you.